So all week, in the light of evolution, we've been talking about various other critters inside of us, in our heads, in our bodies. So I, I want to offer you this poem called Wilderness. And it is by Carl Sandburg. There is a wolf in me, fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat and the hot lapping of blood. I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me and the wilderness will not let it go. There is a fox in me, a silver gray fox, I sniff and guess. I pick things out of the wind and air, I nose in the dark night. I circle a loop and double cross. There is a hog in me, a snout and a belly, a machinery for eating and grunting, a machinery for sleeping satisfied in the sun. I got this too from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let it go. There is a fish in me. I scurried with the herring. I blew spouts with porpoises before land, before the water went down, before Noah. There is a baboon in me. Clamoring, clawed, dog-faced, yawping a galoot's hunger, hairy under the armpits. I'm ready to snarl, ready to sing and give milk, waiting. I keep the baboon because the wilderness says so. There is an eagle in me and a mockingbird, and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams and fights among the Sierra crags of what I want, and the mockingbird warbles in the early forenoon before the dew is gone, warbles in the underbrush of my Chattanoogas of hope, gushes over the blue Ozark foothills of my wishes. And I got the eagle and I got the mockingbird from the wilderness. Oh, I got a zoo. I got a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart. And I got something else. It is a man-child heart, a woman-child heart. It is a father and mother. It came from God knows where. It's going to God knows where. I am the keeper of the zoo sometimes. I say yes or no. I sing and kill and work. I'm part of the world. I came from the wilderness. Carl Sandburg. Wes didn't know the uh, story I'm about to tell, but you'll see in a moment why it's really perfect, given what he just did there. Uh, so uh, in a little bit, we'll uh, be, uh, Wes will take us through a really beautiful kind of ceremony. Uh, but going into it, I wanted to offer a certain perspective. And I'll begin by sharing with you this story, which um, I've told before. You may have read it. Uh, elsewhere, uh, the form in which I heard it was that a woman, a Native American woman, first people woman, was asked toward the end of her life, Grandmother, how did you become so happy? How did you become so skillful, so loved, so wise? What did you do? How did you do it? 
She paused, reflected, said, you know, I think it's because when I was young, I realized that in my heart were two wolves, one of hate and one of love. And I also realized that everything depended upon which one I fed each day. The story is touching for me, uh, at least uh, for many reasons, including the recognition of the wolf of hate, which can be sometimes disowned or denied or euphemized in more spiritual or um, contemplative or psychological environments. And yet, I think there are very few people, me included, who do not have the capacity and sometimes even the inclination toward what the Buddha called ill will or hatred or uh, dehumanization of the other, uh, aggression, even war, and worse. And really centrally for our purposes here, which wolf will we feed? Because in the traditional saying, as I've said, the mind takes its shape from whatever it rests upon, for better or worse. And we've seen on the basis of experience-dependent neuroplasticity, neurons that fire together, wire together, whatever we rest the mind upon repeatedly becomes the habit of the brain. So it's both very hopeful that there are things we can do over time that bear fruit, and of course it brings us right back to responsibility. The brain is always resting on one thing or another because of the mind and its attention resting on one thing or another. We're always feeding one wolf or another. Which wolf will we feed? And you can see the implication of this story as well in how humans evolved, particularly uh, the last 40 million or so years when primates emerged, kind of depending on how they're categorized among the mammals. And then the last um, three or so, two and a half million years or so, let's say, since our ancestors first began manufacturing stone tools, using tools to make tools, uh, with brains just a third our size. So the brain has really uh, tripled in its volume in just the last three million or so years. And much of that build out of volume has been about the wolf of love and the wolf of hate. And in fact, it's a primary theory these days in brain science, it's called the social brain theory, that the survival benefits of getting really good at love and also really good at hate were the primary drivers of the evolution of the three pounds of tofu-like tissue currently inside the coconut, as it were. So what are the implications of that? And why did that happen? Well, if you think about it, so as our ancestors evolved, let's kind of mark it the last several million years, they bred mainly internally inside bands. There was some genetic mixing between bands, but primarily within bands, you know, 35 to 75 members, who then um, really needed to work together to survive and competed with other bands for scarce resources. And in small ways that gradually accumulated over easily well over 100,000 generations of the last two and a half million years. Um, Bands that had little uh, advantages in their DNA uh, at loving us 
cooperating, using language, developing empathy, bonding, acquiring compassion, loving kindness, happiness at the welfare of others, uh, being able to imagine their way into each other, being altruistic. Bands that were more inclined to do that were better at passing on their genes. It's also true that bands that were good at dehumanizing the other, cleverly beating them in various ways, including very violently, those bands too uh, were able to pass on their genes. And it's sometimes easy to romanticize Stone Age life, all the rest of that. Um, you know, much about it that was beautiful. Uh, some hunter-gatherer groups tended to be very cooperative with each other, as best we can gather. But on the whole, if you just use the wars of the 20th century as kind of a baseline, roughly one in a hundred men died due to war in the 20th century. And in conflicts between current hunter-gatherer bands and also historical hunter-gatherer bands in recent history, as well as an archaeological record, the death rate due to male violence, particularly between bands, was roughly 12 to 15 times greater than that. Partly because there wasn't as much medicine as there was in world in the 20th century, but let's remember that even in World War I, you know, there wasn't a lot of great medicine. And no matter how much medicine you've got, you know, if an atomic bomb goes off, it's not going to help you very much. So I don't say this to, uh, you know, be a downer. It's more like to appreciate what the opportunity is and what the challenge is. Uh, if we if we hate the wolf of hate, we just have more hate. If we hate the wolf of hate in the other, we just have more hate. On the other hand, if we fail to uh, restrain and tame the wolf of hate and draw upon some of its capacities, if you will, using the term hate very broadly and metaphorically, you know, maybe on a kind of really careful as-needed basis perhaps, you know, but if we don't restrain and tame the wolf of hate, uh, we're going to be in a world of trouble. We're already in a world of trouble. A strategy that made a lot of sense in pure biological genetic terms um, when the population of the earth was fairly small, a few hundred million spread out, there were times in our history, just a million or so years ago, where there were these evolutionary bottlenecks where only 10,000 to 15,000 of our ancestors lived at the time. That's why humans have less genetic diversity than our nearest relatives, the bonobos and the chimpanzees, because of these choke points. Tricky business. I mean, tough times. So um, what to do about it all, right? Uh, Back in the day, maybe it made sense to really fear and hate, the, hate them. But these days, seven billion of us pushing toward eight, stuck together on a leaky lifeboat, planet Earth, it's a prescription for disaster. And so the question then really arises, how do we, how do we grapple with differences, competition, disagreements, conflicts? Um, how do we do that in ways that don't... Um, suck us into that ancient uh, blueprint of fearing and hating them? And how do we, in effect, expand the circle of us to include others, including the whole wide world? Including, in very, very real ways, across a dinner table, or a fence with a neighbor, or a common wall, 
or you know, across the street or at the school, in the workplace. Because you know, that circle of us can easily contract, can't it, to come down to just me, myself, and I, right? Sometimes, especially when we feel offended or provoked or mistreated or affronted by the other. Especially if we feel needy, we don't feel our needs are met, the wolf of hate starts getting up and looking around for something to bite. And then if we feel attacked or mistreated or put upon by the other, whew, you know, it's a strong tendency. So what do we do about it? Well, there are many things we can do about it, including trying to intervene at the material level of the world so that there really is enough for everybody. Because clearly we have the technical know-how and capabilities to really make that happen. It's a question not of means, but of will. To feed every child on the planet and create a safe uh, environment for every person here. That's obviously one level. At the psychological level, there's a lot else we can do. And one of the things we can really do uh, draws upon this profound teaching in Buddhism, as you may well know it, of the so-called Brahma-viharas, the dwelling places, viharas of Brahma, of the gods, or sometimes in Tibetan Buddhism spoken of as the four measurables of loving-kindness, compassion, um, happiness at the welfare of others, sometimes called sympathetic or altruistic joy, and uh, equanimity, balance and evenness. You've been living in the immeasurables here. You know, metta, karuna, mudita, upekka. You know, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. All right. And these uh, dwelling places are not just for the gods. They're not just for Brahma. They are our own home as well. And as we ground increasingly in compassion and loving kindness and sympathetic joy, as well as equanimity, we're much more able to deal with them skillfully, honoring our, our needs and our differences while not tipping into hatred and ill will, what the Buddha called those hot coals that we throw at others with bare hands, burning ourselves in the process. Anger, as I spoke of, you know, with its honeyed barb and poison tip. How do we avoid that? The Brahma Viharas can certainly help us. They're one of the most cherished and beloved aspects of Buddhist practice. And one of the beautiful things about them uh, that strike me is they teach us about giving ourselves over to good, allowing that which we aspire to to be native to us here and now, to allow it in, to receive it, to let it be the current that carries us, you know, in the stream of our life, the current of loving kindness or compassion, sympathetic joy or equanimity, giving ourselves over to it, letting it inhabit us. And in that moment, you know, abiding in the dwelling place of the gods. And I think that kind of practice, again and again and again, can really help us again and again and again Expand the circle of us to include the whole wide world and feed the wolf of love. So now Wes is going to take us into a practice about that, maybe with some other comments. Yeah, that's uh, a beautiful introduction. And uh, tonight we want to offer you this exercise uh, to really practice the Brahma Viharas practice uh, these abodes 
in relationship to each other. In other words, not sitting there and evoking the feelings in yourself uh, and holding the image of somebody in your mind, yourself, or loved ones, um, or difficult people. And it's, it's being with each other and practicing uh, these extraordinary feelings, realizing that we can actually feel them really powerfully when we are with other people. Um, it's a, what we're going to do is a combination of two practices that I learned from Joanna. One is called uh, learning to see each other, and the other one is called just like us. Or no, just sorry, just like me. Now we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to all stand up. Just wait one second. We're going to all stand up. And then we're going to kind of mill around. We're going to move around a little bit around the room. And when I ring the bell, you'll find someone that's close to you and you will just stop opposite them. And then I will give you some instructions from there. Um, so, and you know, you can kind of move through the Zabutans and there's a lot of space here. And just, uh, th this is a very important part of the exercise, milling. <laughs> so please, stand up, mill. Imagine you're, you're in downtown San Francisco on a busy day and <laughs> some people are really slow and you want them to get out of the way, but you find your way around them. Okay. Situate yourself in front of somebody. You can look at them, uh, and if you feel a little uncomfortable, you know, feel free to turn your gaze away and then back, bring it back. Do we have any other uh, lone, lone wolves? Okay, so just uh, acknowledge each other. Acknowledge that standing before you is a human being. Just like you. Now silently repeat these, these phrases while looking at your partner. This person has a body and mind, just like me. This person has feelings, emotions, and thoughts, just like me. This person has held someone's hand as a child or adult, just like me. This person wants to be safe and happy, 
just like me. As you behold this person in front of you, open your awareness to the powers that are there, to their gifts and strengths, potentialities. In this being are unmeasurable reserves of courage, intelligence, endurance. There are gifts there in this person of which this person, him or herself, may not even be aware. Consider what these powers could do for the healing of our planet and the relief of suffering if they were to be believed and acted on. As you consider that, feel your desire that this person be free from fear. Experience how much you want him or her to be free from greed, released from sorrow and from the causes of suffering. Know that what you are now experiencing is the great loving-kindness, metta. Okay, bow to your partner. Mill a bit. Mill a bit. Pretty good Millers. <laughs> if you're looking for someone, raise your hand. There's one over here. <laughs> Happy to see each other, I can tell. Okay, beholding the person that's uh, sitting or that's standing across from you. Be aware that this is a human being who has a body and a mind just like me. Now silently repeat these phrases while looking at your partner. This person in his or her life has experienced physical and emotional pain, just like me. This person has at some point been sad and disappointed or felt lonely, just like me. This person has at some point in their life had a bad hair day, <laughs> just like me. <laughs> this person worries and is frightened sometimes, 
just like me. As you behold this person, open your awareness to the pain they have known. Here, as in all human lives, there are sorrows, disappointments, failures, loneliness. There are hurts this person may never have told to another living being. As you open to their suffering, you know that you cannot remove it, but you can be here with it and with this other person. As you experience your readiness to be with the pain of another, know that what you are experiencing is the great compassion. It is karuna. It is excellent for the healing of our world. And then taking a moment with your eyes closing, letting yourself receive the feeling of compassion for the person across from you. Being mindful of this experience, what it's like. then being aware of the fact of the other person's compassion for you. They're looking at you, they're sensing of you, and they're wishing you well. Can you experience the receiving of their compassion and good wishes for you? What's this like? Can you open to and receive the good wishes of this other person for you? Some more milling, please. Bow to your partner, sorry. Looking for someone with a hand raised, if you're looking for a partner. Keeping your hand up till you find someone. There is an even number here, so you will not be abandoned. As you regard your partner, be aware that standing in front of you is a human being, 
just like me. Standing in front of me is a human being who has thoughts, feelings, a body, a mind. Know that this person has held someone's hand as a child or adult, just like me. Know that this person wants to be safe and happy, just like me. As you take in the presence of this person, consider the joys, triumphs they may have had in their lives, the good grades, scout badges, the trophies or the acknowledgement for service to others. Consider how good it would be to work together with this person on a common project, planning, taking risks, each helping the other to find their strength, creativity. Together, helping to heal the world. As you open to that possibility, What you open to is the great wealth, the pleasure in each other's powers, the joy in each other's joy. This is the great feeling of mudita. So then again, taking a moment with your eyes closed mindful of whatever is here for you. Internalizing the sense of your mudita, your altruistic happiness at seeing the good in another person. Or the happiness at imagining what the good could be in this other person. Taking in mudita. And also being aware of the fact of the other person's good wishes for you. Their happiness at seeing some of the goodness in you even if they don't know you well, the goodness written in your face, your eyes, the feeling of your heart, or their efforts to imagine the goodness in you, as yet not exactly known. What is it like to receive their happiness at your goodness, their recognition of you? and the possibilities in you. What is this experience like and can you let it sink in?
bow to your partner, acknowledge your partner, and then Mill. First, the clean up. Looks like a traffic jam there in the middle. <laughs> Got a loner here, over here. Looking for hands, if you have a hand up. Looking for a hand over there behind you. Hand seeking hands. More hands over there. Somewhere. Finding a partner. Got one one more. They're over here. If you keep your hand up, they can find you. Oh, oh one person left. <laughs> well, I'll be your partner. Will you be my partner? Okay, regarding the person that you're facing, relaxing, taking in the presence of this person. Silently repeating the phrases, connecting with the feelings. This person has a body and mind just like me. This person has feelings, emotions, and thoughts just like me. This person sometimes get, gets bored while meditating just like me. This person wants to be safe and happy just like me. This person has seen a picture of the earth from outer space and has seen the lights of the Milky Way just like me. Let your awareness drop deep inside of you like a stone sinking below the level of what words can express. To the vast currents of relationship that underlie all experience, including this one. The web of life that supports and interweaves our lives together through all space and time. Regard the being before you as if seeing the face of one who at another time, another place, was your lover or your enemy, your parent, or your child. And now you meet again on this brink of time 
and you know your lives are as inextricably interwoven as nerve cells in the mind of a great being. Out of that vast net you cannot fall. No failure or cowardice can ever sever you from that living web because that is what you are. Rest in that knowing. This is the great peace. The great peace of equanimity. Out of it you can ask, you can act, you can risk anything, and let every encounter be a homecoming to your true nature. So be it. So again, taking that moment to let the eyes close. Being with, as I am myself, the experience of doing this. Letting your recognition of the larger whole in which the other person abides and has their abiding, letting this recognition, this feeling of the larger whole as a doorway into equanimity sink in. And also recognizing that the other person saw the larger holes that you are a part of and imagined them as well. Feeling connected with you in the larger hole, the largest hole that we're all a part of. Letting it sink in that the other person felt you and saw you in this way. Acknowledging your partner. And begin to mill your way back to where you belong or where you have situated yourself.
Well, it's beautiful to watch that. So much heart opening happens organically, it seems, in these retreats. As we quiet the mind, we find Buddha nature, the heart of a Buddha inside of us, as wide as the world. That's what the, the description of metta, right? A heart as wide as the world. Yeah. Omitting none. So any comments about the practice? That was really nice. It was way less manipulative. You were going to say that? It was way less manipulative than I've seen it done with the open eyes, closed eyes, closed eyes, open eyes, and you're with the one, you know, it's like, that didn't seem, um, manipulative, it just seemed lovely. Isn't it amazing to really gaze at a person and and then really let yourself feel that they are like you and that they are these living beings, they've all had the pain, they've all had, you know, so little triumphs, a little something that, uh, you know, has brought them joy. And uh, and to just... uh, sense how interconnected we are, how similar we are, really. I think, isn't it, we, we about 99.999% of our DNA is exactly the same as the person next to us. The Dalai Lama has that, has your DNA, basically. Little variation. Or here's a weird one. <clears throat> no. No, go for it. No, well, the, well, the silly way into the weird one is we share roughly 20% of our DNA with bananas. So it <laughs> kind of explains me. Okay. But the I don't know. It's been pointed out. It's really true. If you kind of. Yeah. Well, the other thing, you know, and different things work for different people, right? To draw you in. And that's the whole point, what draws us in. And anyway, if you think about it, we were all together in the Big Bang. Really, literally. We in everything, we're it, all together right. in the Big Bang, which at one level is just like, whatever, dude. At another level, it's like, <laughs> wow. So, it, you decide. You know. and, and I don't know if you know this, Rick, you might, seeing how much you know. <laughs> The big, the big Bang happened 13.8 billion years ago today. <laughs> See? I didn't know. Great, thank you. So, now I know more. Happy birthday to everybody, you know? <laughs> no, that, that is, it, it, it's astonishing when you think about it. It's, uh, 
How did something come out of nothing? And why? Why is there a universe? Why is it? Nobody ever has... Well, there's a lot of answers to the question why, but very, very few of them made any sense to me. Do you, do you have any sense of why? <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot here, but tell us why. <laughs> It's okay not to know. That, that's right. There you go. <laughs> Somebody had their hand up. Yeah. Oh, we're not going to find out why. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, first I was going to say I thought, I thought you looked familiar. Uh, but also, <laughs> when we were all together. Oh. Uh, I, I don't, I would think that uh, one would be predominant. I mean, you might get a, you know, a faint inkling of the other one leaking into the primary feeling. Right, right. We, we did discuss that. We actually, you know, we, we, we tried to, but we thought you could take it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it goes to show you how sensitized you are. I mean, how really open you are 
which is an important thing to remember as you go out into the world, you know, and uh, not everybody you meet on the street you're going to want to go bow to and <laughs> hug and I don't know, maybe maybe they would. Berkeley. <laughs> oh, Berkeley, That's yeah. where you, you live, but... If I could, uh, just, you know, maybe a little, I don't know, more serious about it, but a, a practice I've been doing a lot uh, is seeing the being behind the eyes. And it's interesting, again, mindfulness of little short intervals and, like, what happens during little brief periods of time uh, with a brain where neurons are firing five to 50 times a second and the actual neural substrates of awareness tend to update about six times a second, four to six times a second. So they, it's like literally the refresh rate of a monitor, a computer monitor, a TV screen. So that's, you know, that's why it can, you can track you know, two, three, four easy mind moments or aspects of experience even just during a second. So little, a lot of little things can happen in a short time frame. And anyway, it's interesting to watch that when you just see someone, uh, I, I suspect it's true for you, it's certainly true for me, initially you register, oh, okay, person, body in space, maybe some quick take, size, gender, age, something, beyond gender perhaps, something. Okay, and then within a mm, two, three, four seconds, somewhere in there, if you just kind of see them or not give them the SLN stare, but just sort of track them, you start to feel them as a person. They become a person. They become a thou. And there's something really powerful about giving yourself those extra three or four or five seconds to register them as a being. You know, It's really something. It's, uh, obviously, if we're doing, let's say, metta for people that we don't know or on the street, it help, you know, this, this is like that. It's, it's in that practice. So seeing the being behind the eyes, including beings that we have difficulty with. And that goes to this practice uh, I try to keep in mind, which is to thou the other being. Or really, in this setting, thou all beings. Take thou as a verb. And what I mean by that is, you may know this model from um, Martin Buber of relationship, in which there are three kinds of relationships. I thou, I it and it, 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 it. It's a very powerful and simple model, and you can feel the difference, right? So um, you are thou's to us and me. I'm getting teary. I feel like we are thou's to you, you know? And we don't have to agree with other people. We can still thou them. We don't have to approve of them. We can still thou them. And um, so when we thou people, We don't use them as means to our ends in a problematic way. We don't exploit them. And um, we take them into account. We hold them in our mind and heart. Even if we compete with them for a job, let's say, or a touchdown. Uh, Then itting, I it. That's where we think of other people as means to our ends, even if we're pretending to be their new best friend uh, or sell them a car or something like that. And... um, the interesting thing is we can experience it really quickly when we feel itted by the other person rather than thou. You know, the words may be honeyed barbs, you know, but the poison tip is we, do, we feel itted by them, objectified, used in some way, worked, pitched, something. You know, not really seen, right? 
And we know what that feels like. It's very painful. It's terrible, kind of. And it's scary. Because in terms of the wolf of love and hate, being itted is the fast track to terrible things happening so easily, just like that. And then itted is kind of like bodies in space, people in an elevator walking past each other uh, on a sidewalk, but not at, in the Spirit Rock Temple here. <laughs> um, so anyway, long story short, it's really interesting to explore what it's like to thou others, including under challenging conditions. And to take the time, the five, ten seconds sometimes, to establish a thouing as a verb of them as a frame in which we do what we need to do with them. And then last, a really powerful practice is to explore thouing oneself. Whoa. <laughs> One of the last of all beings, you know, to thou. To, what is it to thou oneself? To thou one's pain? To thou the layers in the psyche, the more vulnerable, perhaps younger, more fundamental, more intimate layers. What's that like? All the way around, a good practice. Including as we, you know, transition from this retreat. Did you want to say, please? Thank you. Yeah. So I, I'll just repeat it and then comment briefly, and then we'll, I think, move into um, some walking, and then we'll come back and you know um, complete this evening. Uh, question, comment: What do we do when we're all thoued out? You know, we're burned out, compassion fatigue, caregiver burnout, right? And where if we open wide, bam, we just feel so depleted. Yeah. And that's where. And uh, equanimity really comes in. And why it's said that of the four Brahma Viharas, equanimity is the most fundamental. Because without equanimity, it's really hard to sustain compassion, loving kindness, and altruistic joy. Right? So I think there, um, I look to practices of equanimity and also, of course, self renewal. You know, restorative practice, restoring ourselves. This is kind of terminology. Right? So important. And there again, again, this taking in the good business, you know, I talk about of really letting resource supplies land. You know, social supplies like feeling seen, cared for, loved, appreciated, letting it land. Letting the feeling of loving land, right? Uh, because love it fuels us, whether it's flowing in or flowing out. It's love either way. But letting it land. So I think that's really important. Um, resourcing oneself. A lot of people in this room are in caregiving roles, you know, paid and unpaid. Um, and, um, and then just last, the uh, thing about equanimity is to really appreciate that. As the Buddha teaches and others have as well, there's so many causes upstream of this moment of reality, you know, including the life of this other person, most of which they had nothing to do with, we have nothing to do with, most of which we can't influence. You know? And all we can do is all we can do. Right? But to really help people register that kind of equanimity and deepen an equanimity 
Um, uh, you know, it's, maybe I'll close on this comment from, you may know this boy, little boy. Wow, teariness. Uh, his name's Nikosi Johnson. He uh, was born with HIV AIDS in South Africa. And uh, you may know him. He um, lived to be about 12 years old. And before he died, and he lived, I think, late 80s, early, you know, through the 90s, um, he lived at a time where HIV was a taboo topic and a lot of stuff about it. Anyway, he became a national spokesperson for children, especially with HIV. And it really goes to equanimity. He has this quote that I remember well, and, and I, I'll give a little paraphrase here. He says, um, do what you can in the place where you are, in the time you've been given, with what you've been given, in the time that you have. And that's it. That's all we can do. Will you repeat that again? <laughs> There's an exact quote. Um, it's very close to what I'm going to say. It says, do all that you can with what you've been given in the time that you have in the place where you are. I think that's a good time to take a break. So... Maybe just a short break, like 15-minute break, and we'll come back and we'll close the evening. Okay? Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.